you'd like to turn your Bibles to John chapter 18, we are closing in on the end of this book, a journey that started last summer, if I'm remembering correctly, and we're, we're getting to the final few chapters. But this morning we're looking at John chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. It's on page 904 of the ESV Pew Bibles. John 18, 1 through 11. And let's go to the Lord and pray together. Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would graciously instruct us from your word, uh, correct, correct us, rebuke us, encourage us, refresh us, and teach us, Lord, so that we can walk in your ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Some actors and actresses, when they are performing on television, are called to stand on a mark. They're called to walk out onto the set and stand in a designated spot called a mark. And sometimes this isn't anything more than a couple pieces of colored tape with an X on the floor that they can see, but that the cameras cannot. And maybe you've even seen some shows where the, the TV personalities are, are walking out on stage and they, they do one of these, they kind of look, and then they stand up, and that's what they're doing. They're looking at their mark. And the reason they have a designated mark to stand on is because everything is concentrated and optimized for that spot. So all the, the camera angles are lined up on that mark. The, the focus distance of the lenses are, are set up exactly for that distance. Uh, the boom mic that, that hangs around up out of, out of sight on the camera but it is above their heads is, is positioned right there. If they were further away then their, their audio wouldn't get picked up and make it back to the control room. And, and on the, on the close-ups when their face is filling the, the frame the, the mark is extremely important because even if they're off a half a step they're going to get cut off from, from the viewer. Everything is optimized and designed for the person to stand exactly on that mark. God has a mark for us, and that mark is Jesus Christ. God calls us to stand on the mark of Christ, to stand with Christ. And God has focused his grace on that mark. He has focused his grace on the mark of standing on Christ in faith. Jesus went to the cross willingly, and he took the cup of God's wrath for those who stand with him. And that's what we're going to see in this passage. We're going to see Jesus willingly going to the cross. We're also going to see the, the soldiers and the temple officers that came out to arrest Jesus and the number of, of those soldiers that came out. And the number might surprise you. We're also going to unpack that mysterious section in this, in this passage about why the soldiers that came out to arrest him drew back and fell to the ground the first time Jesus identified who he was, but not the second. We're going to unpack that this morning. And then finally, within this passage, we're going to see two different men highlighted. 
We're going to see two different men that stand in contrast with relationship to Jesus Christ. We see Judas, who is not standing on the mark of Christ, and we're also going to see Peter, who did. He stood on, he stood on the mark of Christ. And then finally, we're going to conclude with a challenge question regarding our faith, and, and then draw some encouragement. Um, th- this passage serves to encourage those who are standing on the mark of Christ, especially if you've been weary. So let's get to it. We've got a lot to cover. This is chapter 18, 1 through 11. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So this this passage begins at verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words. What words? The words that he's been speaking ever since chapter 13, ever since the beginning of that last night together, and then all the way up to and including the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. So those words. After he had spoken all those words, it says he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. The, the brook uh, Kidron, or the Kidron Brook, was normally, it, it was a wadi, which was just a dry stream bed. It was not usually filled with water. During seasonal rains, during exceptionally strong rains, yes, it would fill with water and it would be rushing. But for the most part, this was a dry stream bed. But John felt that it was a geographic landmark worth mentioning. So. Here it is, and it formed the the valley just outside of the eastern wall. The the temple was on the eastern side of Jerusalem, right next to the wall. It formed some of the same wall, a shared wall with the city itself. And so this formed a a decline down to the the Kidron Valley, uh, across that wadi, and then up slightly onto the Mount of Olives to the garden on the other side. So this is where Jesus leads his disciples out of the city, crossing the stream bed and up to the garden which he and his disciples entered. Now John does not name the garden, but Matthew and Mark tell us this is the garden of Gethsemane. We know that's, that's what he's talking about here. So when we think of garden of Gethsemane, when we think of a garden, don't think of uh, 
classic English garden with manicured hedgerows and uh, flower beds and water fountains and crushed stone pathways. Instead, think uh, a cluster of trees. That, that's all this garden was. It, it was. it was a group of trees in one spot. And although John does not include the account of Jesus praying, we know this is where and when it happened. This is where Jesus prayed earnestly and in agony for the Father to remove the cup. But remember, he also ended his prayer with, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So this is where it happened. And while Jesus was praying and submitting himself to the Father, uh, preparing for the unspeakable horror of drinking the cup of wrath on the cross, while he was doing that, Judas was working against Jesus. Judas was busy betraying Jesus. Verse 2, Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place for Jesus, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So let's pause for a minute and make a couple of observations. It says, this is a place where Jesus met regularly with his disciples. He often went. It says he often met there with his disciples. Uh, likewise, in Luke twenty-two thirty-nine, it says, and he came out and went as was his custom to the Mount of Olives and the disciples followed him. So not only did they meet there on a regular basis, they also spent the night there when they were in Jerusalem. Luke 21, 37, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. So this is where Jesus camped when he was in Jerusalem. We don't read anywhere in the New Testament or in the other, the other Gospels about Jesus staying in the home of someone when he was in Jerusalem. No, they, they camped in the garden. Judas knew that because Judas had camped there with them in the garden on several nights. So Judas was not taking a guess. He, he wasn't taking a chance that, well, I think I might know where he is. No, he had insider intel, and he was using that against Jesus. He was leading the enemies of Christ right to Christ. Verse 3, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, so we've got two groups here. We've got two groups of men. One is a band of soldiers. That's how the first group is identified. These were Roman soldiers. These were Roman soldiers who answered to their superior Roman officer, and whoever that Roman officer was answered to the Roman governor, and that was Pilate in Judea. So Pilate had dispatched these soldiers. Pilate had given permission and an order to, to have these soldiers go and accompany the temple officers and to assist them in the capture of Jesus. And that's one group. So the other group is the officers from the chief priests. These were temple police. These, these were Jewish men who served the Sanhedrin and who went out on special assignment as needed uh, or to enforce certain laws. Um, we've seen them before. Remember back in John chapter 7, these same officers or temple police were sent out by the chief priests and the Pharisees to, to bring Jesus in, and they didn't because they said no one ever spoke like this man did. Well, here they are again. Here, these are the same chief priests, uh, officers, or temple police. So we've got two groups together. This is not a couple of guards. 
This is not a, a dozen men sent out with torches and lanterns. And where do we get that picture in our mind? We're probably media, probably movies, maybe The Passion of Christ, maybe something you've seen on TV. There's always this band of, you know, maybe six or ten or a dozen or maybe at the most 15 people. No, this was, uh, the Greek text uses the word for cohort to describe the soldiers. A cohort was a tenth of a legion. And a legion was, you know, so many cavalry, so many soldiers. But anyway, a tenth ends up being about 600. The same word, cohort, can be used for cohort, can also be used for another size of, of Roman soldiers of around 200. So either one. Let's, let's take the conservative number. That's 200 soldiers. Now add the temple police, however many that the, the Jewish leaders sent out in addition to the soldiers. So we're looking at at least a couple hundred of men on the conservative side that are coming out with torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, why would they send out so many? Why, why would Pilate send out so many? If you remember, one of the recurring details in the Gospels is that the Jewish leaders, the chief priests, and the Pharisees were hesitant to take any action against Jesus for fear of the crowds. Jesus was becoming a popular finger, uh, figure. He was, he was loved and, and um, uh, sought after for popular reasons by the crowds. They wanted more of Jesus. They didn't want to see Jesus go away. They also had heavily nationalistic messianic, messianic expectations. So Pilate was worried about some kind of response from the crowds. Pilate feared the crowds as well. This is why he sent so many soldiers. Pilate was fearful of a riot. Pilate was fearful of, of a mob response. Pilate was fearful of civil unrest that would make him appear like an ineffective leader and unfit to govern Judea. That's what Pilate was concerned about. And that's why we have, at a minimum, 200 men dispatched. And, and finally, we have biblical evidence to port, support such a large group. It's not just reconstructing and, and the words. We have scripture, Matthew 26, 47. It says, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the 12, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs. Great crowd. That word for crowd can also be translated as multitude or mob of people. And this just wasn't an average multitude. This was a great multitude that came out or a great crowd of people. So what we have here is a heavily armed, rapid response team formed of local police and military personnel. Hundreds coming out to arrest Jesus. And Jesus steps forward willingly and spoke. Verse 4, Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Knowing all that would happen to him, the arrest, the betrayal, the, the mocking, the flogging, the crucifixion, and most ominously, the cup, the cup of wrath. Jesus, knowing all that, came forward willingly, purposefully, intentionally for you and me. 
Knowing all that, he came forward anyway. I said we're going to look at a couple of of men that that contrast in their relationship to Jesus, Judas and Peter. So here's Judas, verse 5. They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. We'll come back to that. Then it says, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. Now we know from the other Gospels, uh, the other Gospel accounts of the same scene, that Judas had arranged to betray Jesus with a kiss. That's how he was going to identify Jesus as the one they were to arrest. And it seems, if we reconstruct the synoptics, that this happened at the beginning. So immediately upon arrival into the garden, Judas went up and gave Jesus this kiss. Um, Matthew says he came up at once. But then after this kiss, Judas apparently walked back and positioned himself with this band of soldiers and he stood with them. Now why would we be given this detail by John? That, that Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. Why would John include that de- detail? Why would John go out of his way to make sure we understand that Judas is the betrayer and that he's not standing on the mark of Christ. He's standing with the soldiers. This is here to remind us that Judas was spiritually lost. That Judas was not standing on the mark of Christ, even though he was one of the disciples. This is here to remind us the reason Judas was standing with the world, with the betrayers of Christ, was because Judas was of the world. He was a betrayer of Christ. He was an enemy of Christ. And and we need to know this. One of my responsibilities as a pastor teacher is to equip the saints for ministry. Part of that is teaching truth and true doctrine. The other part is teaching and making sure people are aware of false doctrine so that we can discern truth from error and so that we can discern truth from almost truth. There is a teaching out there that attempts to paint Judas as this conflicted, confused man who, although he betrayed Jesus, he was not beyond God's grace. And we're not to judge Judas for his actions. And in fact, they would say something like this. They would say, who are you to limit God's grace? How do you know Judas isn't in heaven? Do you know the mind of God? Do you know know Judas's heart? How are we to know that even at the end, somehow he didn't repent, and even though he killed himself, that he's with God right now? And their takeaway from Judas is that if if Judas can be forgiven, then anyone can. Now that second part is true. Anyone can be forgiven by God. Praise God. We, we are sinners and we have been forgiven. Praise God that any sinner can be forgiven. But the first part is not true. Judas was not forgiven. Judas is not one of the elect. And this argument is usually taken up by people who are who are engaged in ongoing, unrepentant sin, and they want to assure themselves that even though they're not standing on the mark and they're living like this, they haven't lived as bad as Judas, and so therefore God's favor still smiles down upon them. And this false teaching, it it takes the example of Judas and attempts to spin it into a message of hope. And so you'll see sermon titles like uh, God's Boundless Grace or God's Unexpected Mercy. Or uh, God's surprising grace. 
except the account of Judas in Scripture is not given to us as a message of hope. The account of Judas given to us in Scripture is a warning. It's a warning. If we look at what Scripture actually says, it consistently describes Judas as spiritually lost and eternally damned. Let's look at Psalm 109.5. This psalm is directly applied to Judas in the book of Acts chapter 1. Psalm 109 says, So they reward me evil for good and hatred for my love. Let his prayer be counted as sin. May his days be few. May another take his office. We probably remember that last little phrase when they were electing the, the one to replace him. Matthew 26, 24. If the Son of Man goes as it is, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. John 17, 12. We just looked at this a few weeks ago. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that scripture might be fulfilled. Destruction there is eternal destruction. Eternal ruin. John 13, 18. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, and that's quoting from Psalm 41, 9. So both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see the same thing. So when we see John saying Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. John is joining the consistent witness of scripture that describes Judas as an enemy of God, as a betrayer of Jesus, the one who returns Jesus's love with evil and hatred, the son of destruction, someone who is spiritually lost, who Jesus pronounces a woe on, and how it would have been better for Judas if he had never been born. Verse five is a warning. It's a warning. And here's how it's a warning. Here's, here's the fine point on that warning. It's here to show us that Judas did not stand on the mark of Christ. And it's here to show us that he stood close to the mark, but that he was not saved. Do you see that warning? Judas stood right next to the mark, but that did not save him. And that's the warning that we have in Scripture. Judas, Judas had been, uh, for the last three years, in the greatest Christian fellowship experience that anyone has ever experienced. He was literally with Jesus and the apostles for three years, eating with them, traveling with them, lodging with them, hearing them, him teach. Judas had the best teaching that anyone has ever received in the history of the world. Judas saw more miracles at the hand of Jesus than any other generation since that time. Ever. How many nights had he spent with Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane? How many campfires had they sat around and listen to Jesus give private teaching to the inner circle. Judas was right there, close to the mark, but still not saved. This is a warning to those that participate in the life, and maybe even ministry of a church, but who never stand with Christ. They never commit. This is a warning to those who hear the word of God preached, but they never take action on that word preached. This is a warning to those that are friends with, with believers and with Christians, but they're never a friend of Christ in a saving sense. 
This is a warning to those who consider them a, a good person who is loved by God, but they've never thought of themselves as a sinful person who need God's forgiveness. This is a warning for those who stand among a Christian congregation but do not stand on the mark of Christ with faith. Someone may be thinking, well, I've never chosen to stand against Jesus. It's not about choosing to stand against Jesus. It's about standing with him. It doesn't matter if you've never chosen to stand against him if you've never chosen to stand with him because there's no neutral zone you have to stand on the mark. You can't stand on your good works. You, you can't stand on your spiritual heritage or, or how godly your parents were or how much your parents love Christ. You can't stand on attending a church. You can't stand on being a good person. You can't stand on, on being a good neighbor. You can't stand on being a good citizen. You can't stand on being politically correct. You cannot stand on putting family first. You can't stand on being a, a dependable worker. You can't stand on being known as, as an honest person. You can't stand on any world religion or belief system, and you certainly cannot stand on some private conversation or special arrangement that you think you have with God. No. If you stand on any of these things, you're going to find that God's grace is out of focus in your life because you're not standing on the mark. If you're, if you're standing on any of these things, you're going to find that when you cry out to heaven, the audio isn't going to pick, be picked up. It's not going to make it to the throne room. If you stand on any of these things, the cameras will not capture your face. You will not be viewed as one of God's people in God's kingdom. And the reason is because salvation is based on grace. God is not rewarding us and giving us heaven. God, God does not look down on us and see that we've been good people. It is a free gift of God's grace. We can't earn our salvation. We have to become spiritually bankrupt. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, those who are poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God. Those who recognize their sinful state, who acknowledge their sinfulness, and who repent and believe. That's how God gives salvation. But you must stand on the mark. You must stand on faith in Christ. That's the only way to receive God's grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. So there is salvation and, and forgiveness of sins and faith alone, but you must stand on the mark. So repent and believe in Jesus Christ. Let's keep moving. They drew back in verses 6 and 7. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? And, he, and they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So this is a somewhat mysterious description of what's going on here. And I said, we're going to unpack this. Why did they draw back and fall to the ground the first time he answers the question, and then the second time they don't? Some have thought that Jesus startled the soldiers by kind of popping out of the dark and, and immediately addressing them, and, and they got scared, or at least the first one in line got scared and, and jumped back, and he knocked the next person, and then that person knocked the next person and created kind of a domino effect, and they all, they all fell down. But this was not some sort of staged slapstick comedy routine. It also says they 
drew back and fell to the ground. And the Greek grammar makes it very obvious. They are the ones performing the action. They drew back and fell or prostrated themselves. Um, they weren't passively being knocked over like a bunch of bowling pins. So the, the best way to understand this is to understand that the soldiers drew back and fell to the ground in response to Jesus revealing a portion or a glimpse of his glory and holiness. As he identified himself as, it says, I am he. If you've got an ESV, there's a footnote that says, I am. And that's ego me. That's the, that's the name, that's the personal name of God that God revealed to, to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh. I am. So in this revealing of himself, there was some sort of revealing of his divine nature that caused these created creatures, yes, they were unbelievers, Gentiles even, but they were still created creatures. They still had the indelible image of God marked upon them. And when they saw the holiness of God, they fell back and had to prostrate themselves, almost reflexively, almost instinctively, as, as a created creature in the presence of, of our Creator. So Jesus presented a brief glimpse of, of his holiness. They immediately responded by moving back and lowering themselves. They knew they shouldn't be in the presence, or they shouldn't be standing in the presence of God's holiness. And then it was gone. And we're not told the, the interval. We're not told the, the amount of time between when they were prostrated themselves or fell down and then the time where they, he asks them again. But the second time, it was gone. In verse 7, this time they did not draw back and fall to the ground. And so the, what we have here is this kind of deja vu, two times in a row. Um, even the exact same words are used. It's here to show us that Jesus is not being captured. He's going willingly. He's going willingly to the cross. He's going willingly to take the cup that has been poured out for him. He's going willingly in order to fulfill scripture, to obey the Father. John 10, 17 through 18, I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus was communicating, I'm coming with you, but this could play out very differently if I wanted it to. I don't have to come with you right now. I could release the fullness of my holiness and glory. And this would be over before it started. And I want you, meaning the, those that came to the rest of them, to know that. I'm choosing to go with you. The only reason this is happening is because I want it to happen. This is a very powerful way of Jesus telling everyone that was there as a witness, just so we're on the same page, you're not in control here. I am. That's what that was about. Jesus protects his sheep. Verse 8, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. Jesus cares for his sheep. Jesus protects his sheep. Jesus commands that this multitude of armed soldiers with swords and armor on release his disciples, which, by the way, is another example of Jesus 
being in charge. This is another example that, that tells us he is firmly in command, that he can order them. Do, do soldiers normally take orders from the ones that they have been sent to capture? Do police usually take commands from the ones they're arresting? No. No, Jesus is in command here. And then verse 9, we've got an explanatory note by John, referencing John 17, 12. This was to fulfill the word he had spoken of those whom you gave me have lost not one. And then we come to Peter. We, we saw Judas, here's Peter, here's the other one. The other man we want to look like, look, excuse me, look at. Uh, it says in verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants, uh, struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. We shouldn't have any doubt determining where Peter stood. Peter stood with Christ. Peter stood on the mark of Jesus Christ. When faced with a few hundred heavily armed men who were authorized to use lethal force to arrest Jesus, Peter stepped up. He took initiative. He, he acted first. He was the first one to draw a sword. He was the first one to strike out. One tired fisherman against 200 heavily armed, trained soldiers wearing armor. That's a suicide mission. And he knew that. Think about it. Any way, that's, any way this ended, whether he killed the man or, or not, they would either uh, arrest him uh, or they would, they would strike him down on the spot. This was death. This was a death sentence. Because this was, and this was, this was not a warning shot. He tried to kill the man. He tried to slice his head off. Think about the, the physics here for a minute. He cut off his right ear. So here's Peter standing over here. Here's Malchus, his right ear. So we've been on this side facing him. Peter, let's assume he's right-handed, draws from this side. A downward stroke, the sword would become embedded in the man's shoulder. An upward stroke, you've got the body that's in the way. You can't get to the ear. But this stroke, and Malchus reacting, the sword comes and takes his ear off like that. This was a kill shot. He was trying to murder the man with a sword. And we can't help but wonder if this may have been an attempt to live up to his vow. Remember back in John 14, 37, Peter said, Lord, I'm ready to lay down my life for you. And Jesus questioned him. He said, will you lay down your life for me? And so this is Peter's way of showing Jesus that he meant what he said. And we have to admit, in this moment, he was willing to lay his life down for Jesus. If he had killed that man like he intended, he would have either been killed on the spot or arrested and executed. This was the end game for Peter. He knew that. He was laying his life down for Christ. And so often when this passage is preached, we find people shaking their heads at Peter, saying, oh, Peter, tisk, 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 you acted so rashly, you acted so, so uh, reactively. What a mistake. Poor form, Peter. You should have known better that the kingdom isn't about swords and bloodshed. It's about spiritual things. How could you do that? And we chastise Peter. 
Peter was standing with Christ. This was incredibly courageous. Well done. Peter should be commended for what he did. He stood up to the crowd. He put his life on the line for Christ. He stood firmly on the mark of Christ that we would all be willing to give up our life for Jesus. Amen. But just not like that. Verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. So Peter's willingness to lay down his life, commendable? Yes. Peter's use of violence and force to prolong the ministry of Jesus? No. Not like that. And I think this is one of those places where we have to, to draw out the distinction. We can't lump it all together and say, Gee, Peter did a bad thing. No. Standing up for Christ, putting his life on the line for Christ? Good. Yes. Commendable. Using the sword and attacking to promote spiritual things, no, wrong. We can't commend that. We can't. The, the church is never justified in using violent means to advance the gospel, period. We, we can't go there. The church's battle is spiritual. We proclaim the gospel with the power of the Holy Spirit. We engage in prayer. We, we obey the word. That's, that's our battle. It's not with the sword. So yes, commend Peter for his willingness to put his life down for Christ, but not for violent means. And then finally, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Peter, do you really want me to avoid the cross? Do you really want me not to make atonement for your sin? Is that what you want? Shall I not drink the cup? Cup, uh, in this context and in other places in, the, in Scripture, means God's wrath. Psalm 78, 5, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Wrath. Jeremiah 25, 15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make it all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Wrath. Revelation 14, 10, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured out full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Wrath. Jesus is saying, do you not want me to take the wrath of God to Peter? Do you not want me to take the full unmitigated wrath of God upon myself for you and, and my other sheep? Peter, I want you to stand with me. You need to stand on the mark. You need to stand with me. But if you're going to stand with me, you have to stand with me as I go to the cross. That's, that's where this is, this is going. What a passage. Two, two strong examples. We see the Lord willingly going to take the cup of wrath on our behalf. We see Judas standing apart from Jesus. And we see Peter standing firmly on Christ, on the mark of Christ. Where do you stand? Do you stand on the mark of Jesus Christ? Do you stand in the world? Do you stand somewhere in between? Are you not sure where you stand? Or do you stand really 
really close to the mark, but have never committed. If you're an unbeliever, this passage teaches that you cannot stand near the mark, you must stand on the mark of Jesus Christ. This passage calls all those who are not in Christ to repent and believe today. For those of us who are in Christ by faith, for those of us who are standing on the mark, this is not a warning. This is a message of encouragement as well. Look at Peter. Peter stood on the mark firmly, and he stood until what he thought was the end of his life. We've got to keep that in mind. He didn't know how this was going to play out. When he took that swing, that was it for him. He stood standing with Jesus until what he thought was his end. If you are in Christ, you need to be encouraged to to stand on the mark until the end. And, And this is helpful for us, especially if you've been standing for a while. Especially if you're weary of standing on the mark. I had to go to the DMV a couple of years ago and get my license renewed. And it was August, and it was hot. And I thought, I'll, I'll go to another office that, that probably isn't as busy as the one I usually go to. It was just as busy. The line wound outside the door, and I ended up standing in the line for over two and a half hours Hot day, on the pavement, nowhere to lean against, no shade. And about an hour into that, I was ready to sit down. And about an hour and a half, I was really ready to sit down. And about two hours into it, I know that if someone had offered me a seat, I would have taken it. Not not at the expense of someone else. If they offered everybody a seat, I wouldn't have pushed a senior citizen aside or a pregnant woman or something like that. But if we were all offered a seat, I would have taken it. I would have sat down. When we're standing on the mark of Christ, it can get weary. It can get hot. And the enemy knows this. And the enemy, our enemy, Satan, would like nothing better than to have a believer or professing believer sit down for a while. And stop standing on the mark of Christ. And so he offers a seat. Why don't you take a seat for a while? I have this nice air-conditioned waiting room. There's a a glass-doored refrigerator with bottled water. Comfortable chairs. Just for a while. I think I even have some of your favorite snacks in there. Why don't you go have some? It'll make you feel better. And then when you're rested, you can go back. And you can stand later. But for now, why don't you you get off your feet? Stop standing on that mark. It's tempting, isn't it? Especially if you've been standing for a long time. Especially if you're weary. If you're weary, the answer is not to wander off the mark and go sit down somewhere. Somewhere that's a little cooler, a little more comfortable, a little less demanding, 
This passage teaches us to stay standing on God's mark. Remain standing on Christ to the end. No matter how difficult it gets, stand with Jesus to the end. I'm going to close with this. There's a, there's a song called Stand Up for Jesus. It was written by George Duffield, a Presbyterian minister, in 1858. And the last verse goes like this. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The strife will not be long. This day, the noise of battle. The next, the victor song. To him that overcometh a crown of life shall be. He with the king of glory shall reign eternally. Duffield reminds us the strife and the struggle of standing on the mark of Christ, of remaining faithful for him, will not be long. And it's compared to two different days. Today, the noise of battle. Tomorrow, the victor song. And in the span of eternity, that's a good comparison. This is just but a brief moment. This is like today. Eternity is as close as tomorrow. And he calls us to stand on the mark. Jesus willingly went to the cross to took and took the cup of God's wrath for you. And he asks you to stand on the mark. Don't sit down yet. Remain standing on the mark of Christ. Amen. Father, we thank you that you have delivered to us this powerful passage of Jesus willingly going to the cross on our behalf of taking that cup that we deserve to drink. Father, we thank you for the warning example and for the encouraging example. And we ask that you would give us a full measure of your spirit and the power to remain standing until the end. In Jesus' name, amen.